Ricky. Please turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Ephesians once again, to Ephesians chapter 3 this time. I appreciate that. As you find your place in Ephesians chapter 3, I just want to tell you how much Nancy and I have enjoyed being with you for this weekend. I know she really enjoyed the Ladies Missionary Conference, and I certainly always enjoy our time of fellowship together. I will also mention that I left some brochures for the future trip to Israel. I know some of you are already planning to go with Brother Steve Price next year, but why wait till next year? Uh, we're planning a trip November 4th through the 13th. There are some brochures on the table right out uh, in the front, or is that the back? I'm not sure. But right out to the left, uh, pick up one, look at it, pray, and, and come join us on a great trip. It's a life changer, so if you've never been to Israel, it's worth going. If you've been there once, the second time's different altogether. So uh, we'd appreciate your prayers for that trip coming up in November. Tonight, I'd like to look in... Ephesians, once again, chapter 3, beginning in verse 8 and reading right through verse 21. And being a Super Bowl Sunday, I thought this would be appropriate. The seven superlatives of the book of Ephesians. In fact, uh, <clears throat> we're going to read, and I'd like you to notice some of these superlative statements, seven of them in all. You may just want to make a little note and say, I think this might be one. And just to make sure, a superlative is when you use intensifying words like adjectives and adverbs to really express the fullness of your heart or the fullness of your thought. Someone said when it comes to spiritual things, especially speaking of the Lord Jesus, you can use all the adjectives and adverbs your little heart can muster and never be in fear of being reprimanded by heaven for exaggerating. And that certainly is true. The Apostle Paul, he had something super superlative to say. Ephesians chapter 3 beginning in verse 8 says, to me who am less than the least of all the saints this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20, 
Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. It really is a wonderful portion. And as we look to the Lord to bless these things to our hearts, it's okay, isn't it? to go to an extreme when it comes to speaking about eternal matters. And in fact, if I were to give this message a different title than seven superlatives, it would probably be supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you'll always sound precocious. Who can say it? Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Do you know Mary Poppins returned? I haven't seen the movie, but I checked, and this is not included in Mary Poppins' return. I think we need a good boycott, because this is a wonderful word, isn't it? I mean, when you read the things that the Apostle Paul has said here in these few verses, what better word would describe the superlative sayings that the Apostle Paul mentions here? Now, in this portion, you could really say the proper outline to look at these things from the apostle as the Lord led him in writing these things. It has to do with his preaching, his prayer, and his praise. But these seven superlatives are just wonderfully woven faithfully throughout this portion of scripture. And so we're going to look at these three areas, but we'll just point out each superlative, make sure that we all agree on where, where they are. So let's start with the preaching. Now when you start with the preaching, you know that it has to do something with the preacher. As uh, Nancy uh, was so thrilled about the theme for the ladies' conference, how shall they hear without a preacher? She and I had some good conversation about just what does that mean? Does it mean somebody that turns red in the face and pounds on the pulpit or what? Well, it really is the messenger. And the Apostle Paul, when he spoke of himself as the preacher or the preaching, you know, he never had this high view of himself. In fact, he did before he was saved when he was called Saul. That meant the mighty one. But he had a name change, and he called himself Paul, the little one. And why did he say that? What made the difference? Well, the preacher, you understand here, uh, he spoke of himself in a different way altogether than what many preachers we know would speak of themselves. In fact, this is the very first superlative in our list, and we have it right in verse 8. When Paul spoke of himself as the preacher, he said, To me, and here we go, who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given. Now, it's nice, isn't it, just to think that the Apostle Paul had a good self-image. He viewed himself properly. Is that the way we do? Well, the Apostle Paul said, if you went to the very least of all the saints, I'm just a little bit further to being less than them. Now, you and I both know that's impossible, don't you? You know, I told you Paul's grammar teacher surely was up beside herself at his lengthy sentences, but when he said something like this, that's an impossibility. But it expresses, doesn't it, in superlative form that he thought of himself not as something great, but rather 
something very insignificant. You know, the preacher should never become more important than the preaching or his message. And we'll mention that again in just a moment. But notice what he spoke of himself. He said, to me, this grace was given. I didn't earn it. I didn't merit it. I couldn't inherit it. It was just freely given, just as grace can only be administered by God's wonderful kindness that he shows to us. And so he says, this grace was given that I should preach. And, <clears throat> you know, that should be the view that every believer has of themselves. In fact, you look in the book of Job, and Job, when he spoke of himself, he said, I abhor myself and repent in dust and ashes. Isaiah, he's one of my favorites, he said, <clears throat> Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king. Simon Peter, he said, Depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. And the apostle Paul, he joins and he says, When it comes to comparing myself with any of the saints, I'm less than the very least of all saints. Now, in his service to the Lord, how did he measure up with the apostles? Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm not even fit to be called an apostle. And now you're starting to wonder if compared to other servants, he was the least. Compared to other saints, he was less than the least. Was there anything you did well, Paul? Well, he said, yes, there was one area. And he writes to young Timothy and he says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. <laughs> That's where he excelled. He was a great sinner who met the great Savior, and he got a message from the Lord. He writes a message to all of us in the book of Romans chapter 12, and he says, For I say, through the grace given to me, that everyone who is among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. You know, we're made righteous not to become self-righteous. And we have to be very careful, don't we, that the preacher doesn't become more important than the preaching. Well, let's just think about the preaching for a moment because there's another superlative right in verse 8. <clears throat> for he says that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. That is going to be our second superlative. If you're keeping a good list, the second superlative has to do with the unsearchable riches of Christ. <clears throat> now, you know that for something to be valuable, it needs to be rare. And the more rare, the more valuable it becomes. So we're talking about riches on one hand, and yet they're inexhaustible. They're unsearchable. You never get to the end of all of the riches when it comes to Christ. Why? As I mentioned, the preacher should never become more important than the preaching. The message is always bigger than the messenger. The source is always broader than the sermon. And the congregation that Paul addressed, as he mentions in verse 8, at the end of the verse, is that he would be preaching among the Gentiles, in other words, to all people, in verse 9, to make... Uh, all see what is the fellowship of the mystery. And so Paul's message, well, it was bigger than the messenger. And we see not only the preaching, 
but we also see the preacher. And here we see in the preaching of the message that that was the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's like saying somebody kept their finger in their Bible just in case they got to the text. Huh? You never come to the end of it. We can't exhaust the wonderful riches of Christ. It goes on and on. The lottery is nothing compared to what we have in our Bible. Isn't that good to know? Thirdly, in verse 10, we not only have the preacher and the preaching in this first section, but we also have the plan that was set forth, and we're going to find our third superlative here. You'll notice in verse 10, this is what we read, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God, that's what I'm going to use for the third superlative, the manifold wisdom of God. Now, I don't know how mechanical you are, but you may know that there's a manifold in the car. Huh? It's the part of the intake valve and all these things. But what does it mean? Well, it's really the many-faceted ways of the wisdom of God. You know, the Queen of Sheba, when she came to hear the wisdom of Solomon, she thought of wisdom as just one-sided, huh? And when she saw his wisdom, you remember what she said? The half has not been told me. Eliphaz, in the book of Job, he considered that wisdom had two sides to it. But when we see the wisdom of God here in the New Testament, it's the many-faceted the manifold wisdom of God. Just how does this manifold wisdom work? Well, it works in a wonderful way. In verse 10, he says, I want to make known by the church. Now, just that statement itself shows the many faceted ways the wisdom of God is seen. Do you know he is working through not only the church universal and also the church locally as individual assembling of believers, but through the church, those people who make up the church, he is showing the wisdom that only God could make possible, known, and how does it work out? To the principalities, to the powers, to the heavenly places. Now that's reaching out in every different direction. The angelic realms all the universe, they are watching and they're learning lessons that they could have never learned without you and me. It is absolute wisdom, isn't it? Uh, that was the statement that was made when we worked in Africa, when many of our African friends were just amazed at the things that God provided us to work with, like the old 1940 Fiat tractor. Its starter had long since died and the plan was, <clears throat> having a grassy airstrip, we were, we were really cut off, unreachable most of the year during the rainy season. It was only nine months that we couldn't get a car in. And uh, so a, a single-engine Cessna plane would land with Missionary Aviation Fellowship on a grassy airstrip about two miles from our mission station. It was the only place we could find flat in the mountainous rainforest we were in. And so we, we took the Fiat tractor, hooked up a a mower to the back of it, a large mower, like a bush hog kind of thing, and we went and mowed the elephant grass, so you can kind of imagine how tall elephant grass is. We would mow the airstrip of all the elephant grass about once a month so the airplanes could land there. Anytime it got too long, <laughs> the pilot would say, I'm cutting the grass with my propeller, you need to mow the airstrip. And uh, this Fiat tractor, without a starter, after you mowed the airstrip, you never wanted to turn it off. 
because it wouldn't start. So we would always bring it back to the station, perch it up on a hill, and get some of the young fellas to give us a push. We'd drop down the hill, pop the clutch, and it would start, and we'd go mow the airstrip and come back. Until that one day, mowing the airstrip, <clears throat> going through the elephant grass, the ants in Africa would build these huge ant mounds out of red dirt. It would be like brick. And sometimes they'd be three or four feet tall before you'd even notice them. And uh, I hit one of those in the middle, and the whole tractor shuddered and came to a stop. All the African children came out, and all the teenagers came out just to watch. It looked, looked like an accident, but I couldn't do anything because no starter on the tractor. I walked all the way back to the station, got the pickup truck, got the jumper cables, drove all the way back out, pulled right up in front of the tractor, and everybody's watching. <clears throat> I hooked up the cables to the truck first and then to the tractor, jumped on the tractor, hit the starter button, started right up, no problem. Jumped off the tractor, and I'm disconnect disconnecting the cables. And one of the teenagers said, absolute wisdom. They were amazed. <laughs> Boy, I felt good that day. Huh? <laughs> you know, the same way that they were amazed at something so simple in you and me, what is it when we see what God has bestowed on us, that just through the knowledge of him, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Huh? I don't know everything, but I know him who knows everything. And if we know him, what more do we need? He's the most important one you could ever know. To know him is life eternal. And so here we see uh, the plan that God has through his manifold wisdom in every way and in every direction and in every realm whether they be angelic realms, or human realms, or political realms, economic realms, doesn't matter, you name it, and God shows his wisdom. By whom? By the church. That is really a superlative statement just to consider. We also have his purpose mentioned to us in verse 11. And you'll notice in verse 11, here's what he says. According to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. I'm going to use that as our fourth superlative, his eternal purpose. Now, whenever you have a purpose in mind, you have the idea of accomplishing that purpose. In fact, verse 11 says that very same thing, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if there's a purpose in mind, and an accomplishing of that purpose, then you're done. Fait accompli, it's all finished, huh? But if it's eternal, you're not done. That's why it's such a superlative statement. Think about it. It's the longest, long-range purpose that anyone can ever imagine. Talk about a big overall picture. What God had planned from eternity past to eternity future. I tell you about our time up in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You know, they have a lot of the Amish farms there and buffets, all you can eat, huh? amazing. They also have factory outlet shops there. And when Nancy and I were meeting someone at a restaurant, we were there about 30 minutes early and I said, what are we gonna do for 30 minutes? And Nancy saw the factory outlet store. 
And she said, we can go into the Linux factory outlet store. So we went in. So we came in the front door. <clears throat> I saw this nice display. And the placard on the display said, of the design of the pattern of the crystal or china, it said, eternity. I thought, well, I could do something with that. I looked around. There was nobody to talk to. I thought that'd be a good common ground to talk about eternity. Well, I saw a lady working in the back, so I made my way back there. Nancy was looking for a sail. I was looking for a soul, and I thought that might be her back there. So I went back, and there was another display, and on the other display, a little different than the front pattern, it had a placard on it, and it was called Eternal. So I got Eternity in the front and Eternal in the back. I asked the lady, I said, you have a table in the front that says Eternity, and this table says Eternal. I said, what's the difference? Pretty good question, huh? She said, about $69. <laughs> I missed it, huh? Yeah, I was thinking something more profound, you know? When God speaks about his purpose, it's an eternal purpose. How long will it take to fulfill that purpose? Well, he says it's already accomplished. And yet, it's an eternal purpose. It's going to go on forever and ever. What will it be when we see him and we're like him face to face forever with the Lord? And he says, this is not the end. It's just the beginning. And we go on for a million years, and then he amazes us again and shows us something we had never even considered. I believe that's the way eternity is going to be, to see God's eternal purpose will never come to the end of it. If the universe is expanding faster than what we can track, and it is, what will it be? Will we ever get to the end of it? The answer is no. Yet, in a superlative fashion, he says, it's already been accomplished, and it's an eternal purpose. Are you thinking big enough? I hope so. Add some adjectives. Look at the very next one. Verses 12 and 13 is going to give us, or are going to give us the fifth superlative. For he says in verse 12, in whom we have, and here we go, boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. We have boldness and access with confidence. Now that's really mustering up some things here. Just to think about it, the fact that we have access, we'd be happy with that, wouldn't we? But it's, it's, it's much better than that. Not just that he's going to let us sneak in the door into his presence, but it's something bigger than that. He says, I want you to have access with confidence. No one's going to question, why are you here? He's going to meet us with wide open arms. And then he adds that beginning word, we have boldness. We're not afraid to make our approach. And then when we come into his presence, having that access because of the boldness, no one's going to say, who do you think you are? I'll tell you who we are. We're a child of the king. And he says, come, come. Come, and he calls us right into his presence. I tell you, that gives you a superlative standing with the Lord. We have boldness and access with confidence. Never stay away from him. No matter what you may do or think, the last thing you should ever do is to fear or pull back 
from being with him. He wants you to come into his presence. And anything we need to confess, confess. He wants us to. That's why he gave us this option. But don't let anything ever get between you and the Savior. That's Satan's biggest trick. You think he's going to accept you now? Listen, he died for us while we were still sinners, while we were helpless, while we were enemies. You think the door would ever be closed? Never. He says, come on in and come into his presence. Now, we come with reverence, as we'll speak in just a moment, but we have this fifth superlative, the privilege of coming into his presence. You'll notice in verse 13, Paul goes on to say of that same thought of our privilege. He says, therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. The more difficult things become in our life, the nearer we need to draw to him. One elder used to tell me, don't let these things become stumbling blocks. Let them be stepping stones to draw you closer to the Lord. And so we enjoy that great access we have in his presence. Now, that's what Paul was preaching. But he not only was a preacher, he was a man of prayer. Do you remember when he was introduced, when Ananias was directed by the Lord to go put his hand on this head of this lion who was a persecutor of the church? Ananias says, I've heard many things about this man. Are you sure you want me to go to him? He said, don't be afraid, you go. He said, you'll find him on a street called Straight. I love that, don't you? I mean, he was following the wrong path, and now he got on the straight and narrow. You'll find him on a street called Straight. Well, how will I know him? He said, you'll, you'll recognize him. Behold, he's praying. Paul was a man of prayer. He was introduced in his newfound faith in prayer. And you track the prayers of the Apostle Paul. I don't think there was anyone that prayed like him. We need to follow that example, don't we? And in fact, this is his prayer, as we're going to see, starting in verse 14. It's the first, really, prayer of the book of Ephesians. There's another prayer as well, though, uh, uh, in chapter 1, I'm sorry. This is the second prayer of uh, the book of Ephesians. Chapter 1, he's praying that our eyes might be opened. In this portion, chapter 3, he's praying that our hearts might be filled. And so he, he's a man of prayer. He's a good example to follow. His prayer list, well, it was getting long, wasn't it? And uh, I, I know a few people that are prayer warriors, and they make me think of the Apostle Paul. Uh, his prayer life, you'll notice that he starts in his prayer with verse 14, and he states the reason. For this reason. What's the reason? Well, if you were to backtrack 14 verses to chapter 3, verse 1, you would say the, see the same clause there. For this reason. What reason? Well, that's where it has to take you back to chapter 2. <laughs> uh, the Apostle Paul, he was that way, wasn't he? He'd get halfway through his letter and would say, finally. And you think he's almost finished, but he's just getting started. And uh, that's the way the Apostle Paul was in his writing. Uh, but when he prayed, he had a reason to pray. If you were to track his reason, you would see in chapter 2 that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but now he's made us alive. He seated us in the heavenly places with Christ, and he's given us a close relationship to him. We who once were far off have now been brought near by the blood of Christ. For this reason, he says. And then he writes this long parathetical 
uh, portion to talk about the mystery that's been revealed to him. And again, he comes right back to the wind up in the pitch to say, for this reason. And we need to have a reason to pray, don't we? Any reason will do. All we have to do is just consider our great need and he as the one who can make the great supply. What more reason would you want? For this reason, Paul says, and look at the reference, reverence that he uses in verse 14. I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Bowing the knee, it's a reverence that we pay to him in our prayer. When we pray, while we have confidence and boldness to enter his presence, we don't come recklessly, do we? But we come with the reverence that we should have bowing before him. When great men step into an auditorium, everybody stands up. But when the Lord's presence is here, everyone should bow down. The bowing in prayer posture is one of utter dependence, isn't it? The knees are bowed, the hands are folded, the eyes are closed, and the head is bowed. It's almost like an execution posture, isn't it? Waiting for the ax to fall. And yet it is one that shows that we are utterly dependent upon the Lord. That's the kind of prayer warrior the Apostle Paul was. He had a reason to pray. More than we could count. He had a reverence that he paid to the Lord. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. You know, he sees our posture in prayer. We don't just go recklessly, but we make our approach properly. You see that reverence. We need to pay him that reverence too. In verse 15, he speaks of the realm in his prayer that he's speaking and realizing. And so this realm in verse 15 says, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Now, I mentioned this morning that the body of Christ is so big that earth can't hold us. Most of us are already in heaven. And one day, we're going to fill his whole eternity. We're the fullness of him that fills all in all. Now, that is some kind of realm, isn't it? And so as he's praying, he's not praying like he's alone in a corner, but he's talking to the God of the universe. And in that realm... He makes his prayer request before the Lord, and it's in verse 16. Here's the request. You want to know what to pray? That he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Now, that's, that's a good prayer ground, isn't it? You're on good standing when you're praying a request like that. I like what John Newton wrote. Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. Lord, if you just help me get through. No, ask for great things. Pray God-sized prayers. And that's what the Apostle Paul did. And what a request he made. Strengthen us. Not just to make another day, but strengthen us with your strength. And we want nothing less than that. Jacob, what an example he is of a prayer warrior, huh? Do you remember when he met with the angel of the Lord there at Jabbok? He held on and he wouldn't let go. And even though the Lord touched the, his thigh and put it out of joint, he wouldn't stop until the Lord would bless him. And he blessed him, gave him a name change. He's a prince with God because he won in his wrestling match. I tell you, 
we have some good promises in God's word to claim when we pray. Don't be afraid to ask great things of God. What's the result of all this? Well, verse 17 tells us the result. When we pray God's will, we'll hear his answer. And his answer is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. And I'll just pause there. Notice how he gives the response. The result is that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. <clears throat> the Lord only wants to be right at home. When we talk about Christ dwelling in us, what does it mean? If you entertain guests, you can make them feel welcome or you can make them feel like guests the whole time. Huh? Uh, we always feel welcome. Huh? And... Uh, but you know, if you, if you went to visit someone and they kept you in the formal living room and um, had this distance between you all the time, you wouldn't really feel welcome there, would you? <clears throat> when I was in Switzerland, my French host used to say something in French. I couldn't quite catch it until I finally asked my French teacher. And uh, he would say, uh, make yourself right at home, but never forget this is my home. When I, when I got the interpretation, I didn't feel welcome there. But you know, that's not the way the Lord does it. He wants to move in. And do we keep him in the formal living room? Or do we let him in every area of our life? He wants to dwell in our hearts by faith. Then you'll notice, starting in verse 18, the realization of the answer to this prayer. In verse 18, he says that you may be able to comprehend, to know by experience is the idea, with all the saints, what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So we're going to know something that supersedes knowledge. <clears throat> That's exactly what he's telling us. To have a working experience of what it means to have his love dwelling in our hearts. I like the measurement he gives us. They're all infinite, of course. The width or the breadth, depending on your translation, uh, <clears throat> just how wide is God's love? Huh? We were singing about it, weren't we? Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus. How wide is it? Well, for God so loved the world, reaches as far as the east is from the west. And the length of God's love, how far did he go? Well, he gave his only begotten son. The depth of God's love, how deep did he reach? That whosoever came all the way down to where we are, believes in him, should not perish. He saved us from hell. That's how deep he reached. <clears throat> and underneath he laid the everlasting arms, and all the way to the height, but have everlasting life. Really, John 3.16 is, is a good verse to compare with these four measurements of the width and the length and the depth and the height, and to know the love of Christ that passes knowledge. Well, we're coming up to the very reality of it all in verse 19. At the end of the verse, he says that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. There's superlative number six. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. <clears throat> That's pretty full, isn't it? I heard of a little girl who prayed, Oh God, fill me with yourself. 
And she said, I can't hold much, but I can overflow a whole lot. Hmm? When we're talking about the fullness of God, it's like drinking from a fire hydrant, right? Uh, the fullness of God, that's really what he wants to be in our lives. And that's a good prayer to pray. I hope you pray it for us. We should pray it for one another. <clears throat> Preaching, prayer, don't stop after the prayer. Move on to praise. Sometimes we treat the Lord like our doctor. We only go to him when we're sick. After we get our prescription, we never call him back and say, thanks for the good care. Do you do that? I hope so, but most of us don't. And sometimes we treat the Lord that way. We can talk about him in preaching. We can make our request known to him, but isn't there a time to come back and praise him for all that he's done? The Apostle Paul, he didn't stop short. And so in verse 20, notice what he does in his praise. He starts with the crescendo. And we're leading up to that seventh superlative. But notice how he starts. He says, now unto him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly. I always like to read all the different translations on these, uh, this superlative, the exceedingly abundantly translation. Huh? And see which one really pulls out all the stops. Huh? Uh, here's what William MacDonald did in his commentary. He gave kind of a diagram, and he started with he is able. And then he went to the next line, he is able to do. And then he continued, it's almost like an eye exam, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, as the, as the thought gets bigger, the letters get smaller. So we'll test your spiritual eyesight. He is able to do what we ask. He is able to do what we think. Well, let's add them together. He's able to do all that we ask or think. He is able to do, here we are going to kick it up a notch, above all that we ask or think. He is able to do, maybe I need your help, abundantly above all that we ask or think. And here we go. He is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we ask or think. Why don't we ask him for more? In fact, this crescendo leads us to that seventh superlative, the exceedingly abundantly superlative. Hmm? Don't hold anything back. If we're going to have our mouths full of praise and a sharp two-edged sword in our hand, we need to let it be known. We have a great God. There is none like him. If I were ever going to say amen in a message, that would have been where I would have said it. <laughs> amen. It's true, isn't it? And so here we come to the end, the finale, and in verse 21, there's only one response. And so he says, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. What would you say to those seven superlatives on Super, Super Bowl Sunday? I'll tell you what I'd say. I'd say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Huh? We trust that the Lord will use these reminders of the greatness of God in our lives day by day. That's really where he wants these things to be. It takes the preaching. It takes the prayer. We also should have the praise. It's amazing what praising can do, isn't it? It can change our life and give us a testimony when they see the Lord's joy in us. Hope it's that kind of week for each one of us. But now let's close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank and praise you for reminders from your word. 
of, of the superlative way that you have given us to express our relationship with you. Help us, Father, not to hold anything back, but with the joy of the Lord as our strength and the confidence that you give by your Spirit's strength and support, that we would be known by all of Christ living in our lives, that they might see Christ in us, the hope of glory, and that they might even ask a reason of the hope inside and help us with meekness and gentleness, point them to the Savior. Father, we thank you for him and all the things that we've been reminded of from your word about him today. We ask, Lord, that you would continue to bless greatly this wonderful assembly at Claremont Bible Chapel. We pray that their light of testimony might continue to shine brightly till the Lord Jesus Christ comes. And we thank you, Father, for all these things in the name of your wonderful Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.